welcome to 1867 and all that. Episode 12, What the Hell Just Happened? We're going to begin a little differently today because this is, well, a different kind of episode. The rebellions are over. Long live the rebellions. Well, maybe not the second part. But the rebellions are over. And now we need to figure out what the heck just happened. Why on earth did rebels take up arms in the first place? Why didn't they succeed? And so what? What was the effect of the rebellions? What was there, to use a big million dollar word, what was their legacy? Now, these are some big questions, and a great many people have been fighting over exactly how to answer them ever since 1837. So that's 180 years and counting. Almost as soon as the rebellions were finished, partisans of one side or the other, but especially the rebels in exile, began writing up their accounts of what happened, what went wrong, and what it all meant. In the immediate aftermath of the rebellion, some still hoped to continue the fight, and their accounts of events were meant to stir up American sympathy. Later, those involved published their memoirs or reminiscences, and then, of course, the historians stepped in. So, in other words, people have been writing about these rebellions for a good long time. And partly this is because, even though the military battles of the rebellions were more like minor skirmishes than major confrontations, even though when you compare it to something like the American Revolutionary War of Independence or the American Civil War in the 1860s, the rebellions don't compare for sheer human tragedy. But still, the rebellions in the Canadas mattered. In the world of politics, they mattered profoundly because they seemed to have, in retrospect, shut off one possible historical trajectory in Canada, the revolutionary move to independence. Every other nation in the Americas rebelled against its former colonial power and became independent, but not Canada. If the rebellions had been successful, we wouldn't call them rebellions. They would be revolutions, national moments of self-birth, the making of an independent Canada. But that isn't what happened. Instead, they ended up as revolution defeated, and maybe even more so, as revolution declined. The reasons why this happened, why Canada didn't follow the paths of so many other colonial nations in shaking off militarily the shackles of colonial constraint have mattered to both sides of the conflict ever since. Okay, with that in mind then, let's jump in. First question, why did the rebellions break out in the first place? What caused the rebellions of 1837 and 1838? Now, historians have given three kinds of answers to this question, economic, political, and social. And here's where I've got a confession to make. I have, in this account of the rebellions, almost completely ignored the first one, the economic. That isn't because it's boring, though it is. It's because I'm not at all convinced that economic conditions drove the rebellion. Now, the argument uh, that they do, or that they did, runs something like this that a series of bad economic conditions, poor wheat harvests, a shortage of ready cash, and bank crises, 
drove unrest and generated resentment against the political and economic elite. And it is true that in 1837 that was a bad year for wheat harvests and there was a shortage of ready money in the colonies. And you can find complaints about this amongst those who eventually turned to rebellion. One of the criticisms of the ruling elite was their control of land and the banking system. So it's not as if these things don't or didn't matter. But as soon as you begin to look closer, the whole explanation, to my mind, falls apart. The areas that most vigorously supported rebellion were some of the most prosperous parts of both colonies. When soldiers arrived at the zones of conflict in the Richelieu Valley and elsewhere, they found the homes of Patriot and Reform supporters to be well-stocked and well-provisioned. These people weren't starving, they weren't driven to rebellion out of desperation. The rebels were at least as well off as their fellow subjects, if not more so. These people weren't driven by economic desperation into rebellion. My sense is that the economic argument held out for so long because economic arguments really matter to several generations of historians in the 20th century. This was the great era of economic history, from Marxist scholars on the left to more liberal scholars who just saw unseen market forces as shaping human history. Economic forces were, to many 20th century historians, the equivalent of what sex in a bad childhood was for Freudian psychiatrists. They explained everything no matter what. They moved, always present even if unseen, ready to leap out like a Freudian slip or maybe a Marxian slip to let you know what was happening beneath the surface. And of course, sometimes it really was the economy, just not so much with the rebellions of 1837 and 1838. If not the economic, then what? Well, how about politics? And not just politics in general, but the Constitution. Now, the Constitution is a boring word, and in Canada, people of a certain age, and I'm in that age category, are going to groan and think, oh no, not again. For many of us, we lived through decades of ongoing mega-constitutional negotiations. There was patriation, or was it repatriation? There was the Meech Lake, the Charlottetown Accord, proposals, meetings, and more meetings, a referendum, then another referendum, then another referendum, two about sovereignty, another about uh, the Charlottetown Accord. And all of it had to do with the Constitution. But... Constitutions are essentially the rules that people agree to live by. They are the rules that govern the justice of our collective life. And humans are great believers in justice and fairness. Our ideas of what is just can change over time, but the idea of fairness itself is baked into our evolutionary experience. If something seems unfair, this gets under our skin. It can drive us to all kinds of distraction, goading us to strife and to violence, and ultimately to fight for a fairer and more equitable settlement, to reset the rules. And this is what I would suggest underlay the political causes of the rebellions of 1837 and 1838. Profound disagreements about the rules of collective life, about the Constitution. The Canadas were relatively incredibly democratic places for the 1830s. They had constitutions that guaranteed that the people were represented in legislative assemblies. 
but these assemblies had powers that were limited by and bound up with other parts of the governing system, the governor, the executive council, and the legislative council. When we look at this system today, we are bound to see it as intrinsically unfair and undemocratic. That isn't necessarily, though, how all contemporaries saw it. But some certainly did think that certain parts of the Constitution, the rules by which Canadians lived collectively, weren't fair. In the midst of a wider Atlantic world where liberal ideas of democratic rights were being written about and debated, the idea of what was fair was very much up in the air. The Canadas were just north of a country, the United States, which was undergoing a dramatic experiment in democracy. At this point, the United States was the only country in the world to have universal white male suffrage. Let that sink in for a moment. Before we start focusing on the limits of white and male, which were and are very much limits, in the 1840s, so a little bit later, Greece and Switzerland would move to, move to universal male suffrage. But in the entire world, that was it. The French Revolution had initially introduced the idea of universal male suffrage for that country, but it was never implemented in an election at that time in France. So, in this world of democratic experiment, and very early on in this era, it's not at all surprising that you found Canadians who thought that these ideas could be further implemented in the Canadas as well. After all, the Canadas were already relatively democratic. The widespread ownership of land meant that a relatively large percentage of the adult male population could vote. Why should the voices of these electors not be strengthened? Canadians saw themselves as living within a British culture that protected the rights of the freeborn Englishman, and this included the freeborn Canadian, hearkening back to the Magna Carta and the Glorious Revolution. Why should government be so excessively controlled by the power of a small group of people close to power, close in friendship to the governor or sources of patronage? Some scholars look back on the Canadas in the 1830s and see the rebellions as the logical outcome of a repressive political system. How couldn't Canadians wish to throw off this system and create their own more democratic, republican alternatives? But this interpretation is only half right. Yes, politics and the Constitution were at the heart of the matter, but it was more because of the strength of liberal ideas in the colonies that this mattered, rather than the oppressive nature of British rule. It was about hope for something better, rather than desperation driven by horrific misrule. People could imagine something which to them seemed better. They were steeped in a culture that fostered hopes and aspirations of self-government. Is it any wonder they fought over what this meant in practice? So, yes, it was about politics and the Constitution. Mackenzie and reformers in Upper Canada wanted to break the power of the family compact, which was itself a derogatory term that they invented in order to call for political change. In Lower Canada, the Patriot insisted on breaking the power of the elite in that colony, the bureaucrat and the chateau clique, who controlled the legislative council and the executive. These constitutional ideas can sometimes seem a little distant, but they are ultimately about a kind of democracy, about justice and fairness, about resetting the rules of how Canadians live together. But 
the cause of the rebellions isn't only to be found in politics and the constitution. The rebellions were also caused by the way these political resentments and hopes filtered their way through social, ethnic, and national tensions. This was, at least in part, about a conflict between the French and the English. Next week, we're going to turn to Lord Durham's famous report, where he blamed the rebellions on race, on the divide between French and English, or, as Durham put it, two nations at war in the bosom of a single state. Ever since that time, a number of historians have tried to qualify this assessment to diminish the importance of the racial, you know, linguistic or, or uh, religious aspect of the rebellions. They've shown that, in fact, of course, patriot support came from the English as well. After all, weren't Robert Nelson and Wolfred Nelson English speakers? Didn't Daniel Tracy, the man with whom we began the whole series, who ran in the 1832 by-election, wasn't he Irish? And this is a fundamentally important point. The nation or race argument needs to be a moderate one, tempered by the realities of conditions on the ground. But it can't be moderated so much that we lose sight of just how much the French-English divide still mattered. Yes, the Patriot drew support from those outside the French community, but they also fundamentally spoke for a French-Canadian people, and consciously so. The masthead of the Canadian paper was, after all, nos institutions, notre langue et nos lois. Our institutions, our language, and our laws. And the our here, the we here, was very much French Canada. Now, the French-English question was at the heart of why the political and constitutional problem was so intractable in Lower Canada in particular. How could the British government and the British governors have responded to patriot concerns without alienating the English party in the colony? It was clear that the British foresaw the gradual anglification of their British North American colonies, whether by assimilation or simply the gradual growth of immigration from those who weren't French. British North America, they thought, was going to become more and more British. It just wasn't there yet. They could not but be aware of the dilemma they faced in a colony that had, for the moment, a French Catholic majority, but which, in all of their plans, would not be that way forever. How could they best assure a form of representative government that governed in accordance with the wishes of the majority of its subjects, when a majority of those subjects in Lower Canada did not support the British plan for the future? The trick is, they couldn't. They could never square this circle. Now we are going to turn in the next series of episodes to the fight for responsible government in the newly united province of Canada. And this was, responsible government was, that is, how the problem was, I would say, eventually solved. But it is a lot to ask of those in the 1830s to have predicted that this is what would happen. So, without knowing about what was to come, it's not surprising that tensions mounted over what could seem to be the irreconcilable differences of French and English in Lower Canada. The Patriot wanted a government responsive to and controlled by their people, and the British did not want to concede control now to the majority of French Canadians whom it foresaw would not always be a majority. One way out of this was simply for the Patriot to opt for rebellion, and with no other solution seemingly on the horizon, that is what some chose. But you might ask, what about Upper Canada? 
Of course, in Upper Canada, the situation was quite different. But the rebels and loyalists were divided by also some interesting social divisions here too. In Upper Canada, when you look at who rebelled and who stayed loyal, who fought to overthrow the government and who mustered to fight against the rebellion, the one real demographic element that sticks out is religion. The rebel ranks were made up disproportionately of those in the dissenting Protestant sects, Quakers, Baptists, and American Methodists. The division doesn't uh, wholly work out, but it is significant. So this question of religion, of the clergy reserves and who they would benefit, this idea that the family compact benefited the established religions, the Anglicans in particular, seems to have at least driven some dissenting Protestants to stand up against the government. But the main way in which social differences played a role in causing rebellion in Upper Canada was in identifying those not who rebelled, but who stayed loyal. That's the real lesson of the rebellions in Upper Canada, the strength of loyalism in that colony, and the willingness of so many Upper Canadians to stand and fight for the British connection. And this too is a kind of ethnic, or at least a national issue. William Lyon Mackenzie wanted his fellow citizens to fight against the British, to find common cause with reformers in Lower Canada. He wanted to inspire others to fight against what he saw as a tyrannical system. But in this, he was just vastly less successful than those whom he opposed. The call to loyalty, to fight for what was argued to be a just system of government, maybe one that needed some improving, but a system which was itself not worth rebelling over. This claim was just much stronger than Mackenzie's. On that Wednesday, uh, December 7th, when William Lyon Mackenzie sat waiting at Montgomery's Inn, hoping that the reinforcements would come to his call and rise up. They simply didn't come. Instead, thousands of upper Canadians from all across the colony rose up to put down rebellion, to stand against those they saw as usurping lawful authority. This loyalism is a cause, not of rebellion, but of its suppression. So, what caused the rebellions of 1837 and 1838? It wasn't the economy, but it was an interconnected series of political hopes and resentments, especially when they were combined with ethnic and religious loyalties. Next comes the question of why the rebellions did not succeed. Or to put it differently, could they have succeeded? Was this always a faint hope cause, doomed to failure? Here, there are probably different answers for Lower Canada and Upper Canada. In Upper Canada, the best historians of the rebellion, in my view, Colin Reed and Ronald Stagg, make the argument that the rebellion of 1837, at any rate, was largely the work of one man, William Lyon Mackenzie. Yes, other reformers wanted change. Yes, others came to Mackenzie's banner when he called for a rebellion. But without Mackenzie, it's almost certain that there would have been no rebellion in Upper Canada that autumn. Given how late in the autumn everything was planned, given the half-hearted nature of the preparations made, given the way Mackenzie had to work to convince others of the need for an uprising, this is a fairly convincing argument. It doesn't mean that there wasn't widespread political resentment in the colony and a great deal of support for the reform cause. There was. 
but Mackenzie was the man who translated all of this into the ultimately disastrous rebellion. Now, the flip side of this argument is actually the most important one, because it answers the question of why the rebellions failed. And this, of course, is the strength of loyalism. For it was the strength of loyalism which explains why support for rebellions simply was not as strong as it should have been in order to ensure success. A great historical what-if remains around Mackenzie's initial plan that he presented at Dowell's Brewery to get a big gang of employees from some radical reformers and then descend quickly and with the utmost secrecy on the relatively unguarded governor and munitions depot in the capital. If that had happened, if the other reform leaders had said to him, yeah, brilliant idea, let's do it and do it now, that remains a fascinating historical counterfactual. Could the rebellion have succeeded? We will, of course, never know. But my guess is that the rebellions in Upper Canada still would have failed. It just would have been more bloody. And I say this because of how Upper Canadians responded almost en masse to the rebellions. All across the colony, thousands rose up to offer their services in defense of the government. This would have made it difficult for any kind of small-scale kind of vanguard Leninist coup like the one Mackenzie initially suggested. And certainly the widespread loyalty of so many Upper Canadians is the main reason why the rebellions did not succeed. Mackenzie kept writing about the colony's government as tyrannical, but it's not clear that a majority of residents agreed with him. Certainly, the American hunters learned this lesson to their own chagrin when they crossed the border, expecting to liberate the subjugated colonials, only to find themselves attacked from all sides by loyalist militia. Now, in Lower Canada, the situation was quite different. There, obviously, the support for reform and the Patriot was incredibly strong. For years, the Patriot had dominated the assembly, winning election after election. And try as they might, a succession of governors had been unable to successfully divide the party, offering positions and patronage to moderates, finding a way to solve some problems, conciliate in any way they could. Why then did rebellion not succeed in Lower Canada? Here, the answer seems to lie in the very nature of the rebellion itself, the violent risk it asked people to take, and then in the effective response to rebellion by both Colborne and the British military, and even more so by other loyal Canadians loyal to the government. So in Lower Canada, just like in Upper Canada, residents rose to defend the government. When local militia leaders, especially in English-speaking areas, called out for defense forces to be raised, a great many locals stepped up. We saw how important these local loyalists were when the Missisquoi volunteers turned back munitions coming into the colony in 1837, and again in 1838 in doing the same thing, essentially stopping the whole 1838 rebellion from ever getting going around the border at Odelltown. In 1838, by the time the British regulars arrived in the scene, the local militia had essentially defeated the hunters. But the previous year, in 1837, it was also the incredible preparatory work done by Colborne and others that stopped the Patriot in their tracks. In fact, there's a long-standing Patriot argument, even given credence by some, I would say, too credulous historians, that the whole rebellion was never planned and was really just a fabrication of Colborne and the British. The argument goes that the arrest warrants pushed the leaders into action, action they would not otherwise have taken. And then the rebels could be attacked before they were ready and defeated. 
Now, given just how rapidly the Patriot movement uh, was moving to ever more radical activity all through the summer and autumn of 1837, this argument just doesn't have much credibility. The widespread political share varies, the setting up of alternative systems of justice, forcing the local militia leaders to resign and appointing new Patriot militia in their stead, the rise of the Sons of Liberty and their military preparations. All of this suggests a political movement edging ever more rapidly towards open rebellion. The grain of truth in this argument, though, is that Colborne did preempt the Patriot plans by taking early decisive action. He urged Gosford to act and to act now. He established a spy network to bring him reliable information. He had officers scout out areas of Patriot support so that they would know the terrain when and if it came to battle. All of this meant that when civilian governor Gosford finally conceded that action could be taken, Colborne was ready to act decisively. It's very likely that this took the Patriot leaders by surprise. They were thinking perhaps of the American Revolutionary Movement to war, which built up over several years. At the very least, they were hoping to wait until deeper into the winter, when the rivers would freeze, making it more difficult to reinforce the colony with troops from elsewhere. The Patriot depended on these conditions to get the edge on authorities. But Colborne's early actions took away these advantages. Without Colborne's preventative measures, it's another historical what might have been in figuring out if the rebellion would have been successful. But one more factor working against the success was the very natural timidity of the population. Supportive of the Patriot, yes, but also wary of the consequences of open rebellion. It's human nature to flee in the face of deadly violence. This is what military training is meant to overcome. Even those who decided to rise to support the Patriot were often reluctant to stay with the cause when it seemed uncertain. The numbers in the insurgent camps rose, but then they also fell. The number of people willing to stay in Saint-Denis or Saint-Charles or to rush to the border at Odelltown and actually face the prospect of musket and cannon fire was quite a bit less than those who might otherwise have been very happy if the rebellions had succeeded. Support for the cause was great, but a willingness to risk life for the cause, that was something else altogether. And it didn't probably help that many of the clergy warned against rebellion. The habitants were told again and again that rebellion was immoral and ungodly. Good Catholics were not to rise up against lawful authority. Some habitants guffawed and shouted down their priests. They shouted, Vive Papineau! But what of the others who were quiet, who sat and listened to the altercation between faith and politics and wondered, which side should I take? Surely the easiest thing to do was nothing at all. Maybe hoping that rebellion succeeded, but not willing to risk your life to make it happen. So, why didn't the rebellion succeed? They didn't succeed because, especially in Upper Canada, the rebels did not speak for a majority of the people. Many might have wanted reform, but they surely did not want rebellion. And in Lower Canada, 
a combination of brilliant military strategy and natural timidity limited the ability of those rebels who were keen to take action from ever effectively showing that the rebellions could have succeeded. Could it have been different? Yes, certainly in Lower Canada it could have been. A less capable military commander, a better equipped patriot force with a little more time to plan and prepare, and who knows what might have happened. But of course, we know what happened. Loyalist militia and the British regulars stamped down on rebellion. The rebellions of 1837 and 1838 are just that, rebellions, not revolutions. And here's where you might want to ask, so what? Why does this matter? Was there any legacy from the rebellions? Why should I still care today? Now, on the big existential questions, why does any of it matter? I can't help you. None of us really knows what's going on in the universe. Maybe nothing matters. Uh, who knows? But the rebellions certainly mattered to Canadians in the 1830s and 1840s. And they did have some repercussions that we will want to think about. First, they mattered because they hurt. They hurt people. There were real victims. Homes were burned. Men were shot, killed. Others lived with wounds that festered. Hundreds of rebels went to jail, often lingering there in dank, overcrowded rooms awaiting some version of justice which was too slow in coming. Other rebels were sent into exile, to Bermuda first, to Van Diemen's land. Rebels and families fled to the United States. Thousands upon thousands of people lived in fear for well over a year, wondering if war was coming, if an attack was imminent. The militia was mustered, then sent down, then raised again. All of this meant that the economy was going to suffer that year, that it would be harder to bring in harvests to feed families. The rebellions were about politics and the constitution, but don't let that fool you into thinking that they happened far away from everyday life. For those at the time, the rebellions were up close and intimate. You get a sense of this from reading one of the classics of Canadian literature, published a little bit later, Susanna Moody's great Roughing It in the Bush, her account of life starting out in the backwoods homestead just this time. Now, I'm creating this podcast at Trent University, and my office overlooks the Otonabee River on Peterborough, Ontario, just a few kilometers south of where the Moody's homesteaded. This was in the 1830s, rough backwoods country. And that early winter of 1837, the news came to her at first as rumors. She heard that there was a war between Canada and the States, that Toronto was burned and the governor killed. Then that day, she had a letter from her sister explaining more about the uprising. All loyal gentlemen were called to go to Toronto. Her husband, who had been sick, decided that he must go. When he left to go he, to put down the rebellion, their servant wailed her tears as her husband walked away through the woods. Moody writes of how, quote, hope seemed to have deserted me. Now, news came to her only in rumors at first. Several travelers came by the homestead, claiming that there had been a battle with the rebels and the loyalists had been defeated. Toronto was besieged by 60,000 men and all the men in the backwoods were ordered to march instantly in relief of the city. We know that all of this was not true. But here was a woman living through these fears. To her, they might have been true. And for others on the other side, the losses Moody imagined did come true. So even though the rebellions were relatively small in scale, this human cost surely mattered. The other legacy of the rebellion was quite the opposite of what the rebels had intended. 
They hoped for greater democracy, for a reformed constitution, for more say for the legislative assemblies. But the actual result of the rebellion was the temporary end of representative government in Lower Canada. Martial law was imposed and then reimposed in the Montreal district. Habeas corpus was suspended in Lower Canada. Then the constitution itself was quashed and the governor was allowed to govern by fiat with the aid of a special council selected by him alone. This was not at all what had been hoped for. In fact, it was a regression, much less democratic than what the system the rebels complained of. In Upper Canada, the assembly continued to act, but here too, the rule of law broke down. The assembly passed laws allowing for the rights of many Canadians to be washed away. It became illegal to bring charges against someone for the actions they took in bringing a rebel to justice. To say this invited all kinds of abuses would be to put it mildly. Human nature in extreme conditions can be rather unpretty, and the rebellions show plenty of instances of loyalists taking advantage of the unnatural conditions to pursue vendettas against their reformer enemies, imposing a kind of rough justice on them. This was really the equivalent of the rough justice of the summer of 1837, where the surging Patriot movement had imposed their own will on the lower Canadian countryside, demanding that neighbours accept one single political reality and punishing those who did not fall into line. The lessons of rebellion and revolution are violent and conformist, pushing others to accept your own particular version of political reality. You can see many good officials on both sides trying to remain civilized, to govern according to rules, to limit the extremes of the situation. And probably because the rebellions did not go on for much more than a year, this mostly worked. In other revolutionary situations, in the French Revolution notably, but elsewhere too, the longer these civil wars continue, the worse the violence becomes. But still, the actual effect of the rebellion was repression. The hope on the rebel side is that they can overcome the constituted authority and begin to impose their own order. That didn't happen. So, from the autumn of 1837 until, in fact, 1841, the Canadas were governed in a much less democratic fashion than they had been before the rebellions themselves. Okay. So far, we have the personal consequences, we have the suspension of democratic norms and rights, but there are two more clear consequences of the rebellion, or rather, there's one more clear consequence, and one more argument that is often made about what was a consequence of the rebellions, but I'm less sure about. The first is clear. It was the union of the Canadas. Lord Durham's visit to the Canadas might have been brief, but when he sailed back to England in the autumn of 1838, he got right to work finishing his great report. Early in 1839, he finished, and his report called for two big changes. One of these was a union of the Canadas, joining together Upper Canada and Lower Canada into a single province. We're going to go over this in great detail in coming weeks. Now, You'll remember that this idea of union hadn't just come out of nowhere. Various figures had been pushing this for ages, and Louis-Joseph Papineau had come to prominence back in the 1820s when he travelled to London as part of a delegation resisting union. The response to union wasn't drastically different this time around either. Many in Lower Canada still believed it would be a disaster. 
It wasn't exactly popular in Upper Canada either, though you could find more proponents in that colony. But the situation was quite different this time around. So many of voices of authority in Lower Canada and in reform circles generally had lost their moral authority because of their connection to rebellion. The constitution was suspended. Government would not proceed by unusual means. And so, while there would be strenuous resistance movements against Union, the Union of the Canadas would come. The Act of Union passed the British Parliament in 1840, and it was enacted early in 1841. Upper and Lower Canada were no more. Instead, there was now the United Province of Canada. Now, we'll get to all the politics of this in the next section of the podcast. For now, we'll just say that this was the most immediate and significant of the legacies of rebellion. But finally, we can't talk about the consequences of the rebellions without talking about the elephant in the room, responsible government. You might remember this idea, the one Robert Baldwin and his father had been pushing for years. The Baldwins had met with Lord Durham when he was in Upper Canada, and they'd pushed it upon him too. Although Durham didn't use the term responsible government, he essentially called for it in his final report, a reform of the political system to make the executive answerable to the majority in the assembly, to create what we might think of as our modern form of cabinet government. You'll find in quite a few histories of the rebellions, and probably more so in the short histories, the argument that the rebellions prefigured responsible government. Responsible government might not have come until the end of the 1840s, and in fact it first came in Nova Scotia, but the argument goes that the rebels of the 1830s were pushing for just this kind of political reform all along, and that in rising up in rebellion, they hastened the arrival of responsible government. It is ultimately an unprovable claim. We can't run a controlled experiment and test out whether without rebellions, responsible government would have come anyway. History absolutely doesn't work that way. But it's worth, I would say, being pretty skeptical about this kind of argument. For one thing, when responsible government does come, it's going to be first in Nova Scotia, not the Canadas. That is, it's going to come first in a colony that did not rebel. Second, responsible government isn't finally going to be enacted for more than a decade after the rebellions. That's quite a while to wait for something that was supposed to be a direct consequence. But even more so, my sense is that this kind of argument is wishful thinking, espoused by people at the time, and then historians since, who are sympathetic with the rebels, and who desperately want to show that something good came out of the rebellion. And maybe it did, we'll never know. But more importantly, What this leads us to is the fascinating story, which is the battle for responsible government itself. Nothing was predetermined, I would say. There was a whole other slew of events to come. So let's not get ahead of ourselves. We've now just finally wrapped up the rebellions. In this first season of 1867 and all that, we're halfway there. We've covered rebellion. Next up, responsible government. Thanks so much for listening to 1867 and all that. 
We are living, as I record this episode, in pretty interesting times ourselves. Uh, many of us are hunkered down into our homes and trying not to catch this virus uh, we're calling COVID-19. I hope that you know, in some small way, this podcast is giving you some educational entertainment and helping to fill your days. It seems there's going to be uh, a lot of time for podcast uh, listening anyway in the next little while. So enjoy the full run of episodes and please do tell a friend. Uh, maybe they've got some time to fill as well. If you're noticing a change in the sound of the show, this is because I'm recording this episode uh, from my home. My university is now closed. Uh, I'm out of my office and we've now switched to online teaching. I'm hoping and assuming that I can keep up the pace of the show from home, but I will say that I do have four little miniature 1867 and all that's who would normally be in school, uh, but are now in need of pretty much constant entertaining on a, uh, on a daily basis. Life has become for all of us uh, rather interesting. With any luck, we'll continue getting episodes out each week. But moving on, next time, it's responsible government all the way. Well, that's not quite true pick back up the story in the aftermath of the rebellions to follow what happens as people pick up the pieces of their lives and try to re reassemble something approximating political life in the new United Province of Canada. Enemies and friends come close, and then closer. The capital gets moved to, of all places, Kingston. And we all try to figure out what politics will be like in this new, larger Canada. 1867 and all that is created, written, and narrated by me, Christopher Dummett. And this week, the sound engineering is now being done by Rob Viscardis at Paradigm Pictures. Once again, thanks for the generous support of Trent Online at Trent University. And of course, until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.